Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll answer your questions and bring you the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Good news, everyone. It's time for another Space Junk podcast. My name is Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space, and today we are going to be talking about the future of amateur astronomy. We've got uh, we've got a lot of great topics to hit today, but uh, uh, let me go ahead and just bring it right away. My, my co-host, uh, Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes. Hi, Dustin. How are things going? Tony, things are great, man. This is uh, this is one of the podcasts I've been looking forward to since we uh, we started the idea, right? Since we started talking about it, this is the one I had in mind. I know we are going to be we. There's a lot in store. I I always brag that we are in this the golden age of astronomy, and when I meet say that, I usually mean for professional astronomy. But this time, it's we're in the gold. We're entering if we haven't already. We're going into the golden age of amateur astronomy. And we're going to be talking about something today, folks, that is absolutely groundbreaking. There are people right now, there is a company working on a space telescope that you and me and Dustin and everybody else can get access to. This is a this is the first in ever kind of thing. Most space telescopes you hear about, the Hubble Space Telescope, James Webb Space Telescope, all of these are going to be fought over and argued about for from perfect professional astronomers uh, for years. They're the ones who get to use it. But what would you do with your very own space telescope? And that's what we're going to talk with about today with our guest. His name is Sean League. He is running a company called SpaceFab uh, in the uh, in California. And uh, well, uh, let me just bring you up. Welcome, Sean. How are you doing? Hey, Tony. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, it's so tell us a little bit about SpaceFab. What what are you you guys are building a space telescope for us? Uh, yeah, so I, my idea with a space telescope, my original idea was to have a space telescope that's available to the amateur astronomer. And not only the amateur astronomer takes beautiful pictures, but also the amateur astronomer that likes to do backyard research too. Um, but have it available to, to also anybody. Uh, the, the trouble with the Hubble or professional observatories is you have to reserve time years in advance. You have to get permission. Your paper has to be approved, that kind of thing. Um, but what if you have a project that's controversial or you want to you know, take do data that other people don't approve of? Well, why can't you do that? So <laughs> we wanted to uh, allow a, have a space telescope that everybody can access even with their cell phone. So not only can you do this with your, your cell phone, you can go up, you can do it with your, lap, your laptop, you know, any device that you have. And you'll be able to put in your requirements or your what you want to take a picture of. Say, I want to take a picture of Galaxy for five minutes with some filters. You can just put that in your cell phone and within, within 48 hours, the image and data will come back uh, down to you, and then you can do with it whatever you like. God, that's amazing. We're going to dive into some of these details a little bit uh, as we go along with the podcast. But Dustin, what do you think of this? I mean, this is like unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what do you say to a space telescope where they're just like, oh, yeah, you want to control it? Just jump on your cell phone, right? And you know what's even funnier is that Sean's a close friend. Uh, he, we've known each other a long time. He was actually employed here at OPT. Um, and so this is the right kind of turnover for a company to have, right? Sean comes into my office one day and he looks so sad, right? Because this is a pretty close family here. <laughs> and he's like, man, we got to talk. I was like, oh, I'm not losing Sean. No way, no way. So he's like, 
I got to go. I, um, I made a space telescope. I'm like, hold on a second. What are we talking about? He's like, well, you know, and you know, Sean, you know, Sean, he talks fast over here and he jumps right into it. And he's like, hey, man, well, I, you know, I made a particle accelerator on my kitchen table and it gave us this idea. We gave Randy and myself this idea to make a telescope. And so we did. And I'm just kind of staring at him blankly like, are, are we are we having a real conversation right now? You made a space tell you made a particle accelerator first, and then you made a space telescope. Okay, and um, he wasn't kidding at all. I mean, they brought it in, and uh, the whole shop has seen this thing. We've um, we've all played with it, and then I was immediately just like, okay, yes, leave, absolutely make this thing, and we're on board with whatever you guys need. Let's do this. We have to have a space telescope now. So OPT is involved so- pretty intimately then in this in this construction of this. Yeah, well, they're very close companies, right? Yeah. I mean, it's um, it's one of those things. It's for one, SpaceFab is our literal next door neighbor, and um, you know, Sean's still part of the OPT family. So yeah, everything is everything's tied together in a big way, and anything we can do to help, we absolutely do. And um, I don't know how you're going to find a group of people more excited about this thing than, you know, the people you've got in this building right now. It's just uh, it's a huge partnership and something we're very excited to be a part of. Okay, Sean, you don't just say stuff like I built a space telescope and not tell us how you did it. So, uh, what, 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 what? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah, it did start out with, uh, I just built a little particle accelerator on the kitchen table with a, uh, a cloud chamber and, um, one day I'm setting up some uh, because as, like you do, right? I mean, yeah. you, people, you know, you do that, and you, you yeah, know, the neighbors had no idea their lives were all at risk. <laughs> yeah, because you know, I want, I'd like to see some up down up quarks and down quarks. So sure, let's do this. Let's do this thing. So having beaten that frontier of the very small, uh, you've decided okay. Uh, now it's time to get a bill to take. You know, I wish I could use Hubble, but I can't. So. Well, what, what happened was that we actually you know, developed this the, this ion engine, and my partner Randy had an ion engine ex- accelerator that bolts onto an ion engine. And when he saw what I was working on, he says, "Hey, let's get together." And so for the first four or five months, we actually worked on on ion engines. That that was our main purpose. But then we said, "Well, what are we going to use this for? What can you use an ion engine for? Spacecraft, of course." So then, well, can we build a spacecraft that can make uh, make some money? Can we make some, a profit on it? So, well, what kind of space telescope or spacecraft do we want to build? And uh, since I've been an amateur astronomer and professional astronomer for my whole life, yeah, I thought it was fitting to build a space telescope. And um, I know ground the ground observation market is like a $2 billion market, but the astronomy market, there is no astronomy market unless you're you know, a professional. So I thought, well, let's wait let's a minute. What's the $2 billion market? I missed that part. Oh, the uh, ground observation. Oh, looking at the ground with right. a telescope from space. Sure. I mean, yeah. Google Earth is a good example of that. Google Maps and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, right. right. That's right. Yeah. And it's becoming more and more important. But uh, we didn't want to just offer that. We wanted to, our main purpose was amateur astronomy and, and professional astronomy. Uh, and the Earth observation is kind of the fill in the time in case we don't sell the time to start with. But I don't think that'll be a problem. Yeah, I mean, come on, Tony. What do you use your ion engines for? Well, yeah, I mean, I was I was just worrying worrying about that today. I thought, boy, I've got this ion engine. <laughs> and what am I going to do? I mean, it's it's a problem, right? It's like I, yeah, it is a problem. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. 
<laughs> the funny thing is I had to remove it from the kitchen because uh, one day I'm running you know, 14,000 volts through it trying to um, compress the iron beam. And my wife walks through opening a can of tuna. <laughs> she gets a little too close to it and the can of tuna goes whoop right to the right to one of the magnets. <laughs> With 14,000 volts going through it. It's like, okay, I need to remove this from the kitchen now. They need to make a show about this, Sean. Deadly tuna. Um... <laughs> the, I know. This is a real conversation, man. I lost an employee over this. <laughs> this is... <laughs> All right. So we have, so it sounds like you started with your particle accelerator, which turned into an ion engine that you want to use to drive a spacecraft with. Um, now NASA has been using electron or electric electric propulsion for a lot of their spacecraft coming forward. This is not, is it a design based on any of that? Or is it something you just did, uh, while opening a can of tuna? <laughs> uh, actually, you know, it, it's very similar to, to their ion engines. In fact, uh, in our long-term vision, we're probably not going to develop our own ion engine. We'll probably use somebody else's. But what we have now is an ion engine accelerator. It actually bolts onto an ion engine to give it more efficiency to uh, accelerate the particles even further from the engine. We found a way to do that with millions of volts uh, without uh, any issues in space. And we actually have a patent pending on that right now. I don't see the connection, though, between an ion engine and a space telescope. Now, Let's, let's. Is this something you're planning on driving the telescope with? Okay, so our, our first uh, first launch probably will not have a, an engine on it, and I can talk about how we how we move the spacecraft later. But our, we're planning on putting more of these up, up to sixteen in this constellation, and we will have ion engines on those so that we can change uh, orbits. We'll, ah, if we launch okay. four at a time, we don't want to have four of them sit next to each other. We want to spread the orbits out. Got it. Okay. That's what I was... Okay. So now let's talk about the telescope itself. You base this design, at least the first one, on the very familiar CubeSats. You want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, sure. Yeah. We're actually uh, using a 12U CubeSat standard. Um, they're, the CubeSats originally started out as a, a 1U, which is 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeter cube that you can stick whatever you want in it as long as it fits in that dimension. Well, then they came out with 3U to put more stuff in and then a, a 6U, six times that. And now they have 12U. Um, so 12U is a fairly new standard. Uh, so we're one of the, the larger CubeSats that's going to be launched. But the beautiful thing about CubeSats is they have a standard container that will go on any rocket. So you, if you want to move from one rocket to another, you just pull it off that one and put it on the other. It's not like they have to design anything special for you. And that really reduces cost. And, and Reducing costs is what this is all about, because if we reduce costs, then we can reduce costs to the amateur. So you started with a set of specs that was part of the 12U CubeSat, and working within that dimensional framework, you you put up a telescope. Tell us a little bit about the uh, the telescope itself. Uh, so the, t the telescope is a 220-millimeter, uh, or a little between 8 and 9 inches, and um, it's a modified Dahl-Kirkham design. And we have a filter wheel on board that has 12 filter slots, but we'll, some slots have two or more filters in them. Um, and we have three different imagers. We have a 48 megapixel imager for taking the beautiful pictures of, of space or, or even the ground. And then we have an uh, eight megapixel EMCCD, which means that it multiplies the, uh, the light coming in by 20 times. So it's a very sensitive camera. And that one can see in the ultraviolet all the way down to 200 nanometers. Um, and as you may know, that ultraviolet is blocked by the atmosphere. Yeah, I am very well. And do you know that the only wavelength, the only place that astronomers can get that wavelength is from Hubble. It's the only game in town. So that makes your telescope interesting now to professional astronomers. But anyway, yes, that's, 
that's right. That we've had a lot of interest from NASA and uh, other professionals on the UV part of it. So they're very excited. And if if Hubble has an issue or you know stops working, uh, which they had an issue a couple of weeks ago with their reaction wheels, then uh, we'll be the only game in town. Yeah, yeah, it was the gyros, but you're right. And okay, so you've got an you've got an imager for the ground, an, an eight megapixel CCD. You call them an EM CCD for the UV, and what's the other one? Yeah, and then we have a 48 megapixel main imager. That's the the big the big imager for taking big beautiful pictures. Our final imager actually is a what's called a hyperspectral imager, and this one's really exciting because I can scan the ground and tell you what the ground is made of, or what the minerals are on the surface. Uh, I can scan a farmer's field and tell you, hey, this farmer needs nutrients over there or uh, needs watering in this part. He has uh, bugs in this part of his uh, field. Uh, so it can really save farmers a lot of money by, especially if they have thousands of acres, they don't have to water the entire thing or fertilize the entire thing. They can find out where the problem spots are. And we all could also use this for minerals, uh, for mining. Uh, we have a, one of our major investors is a mining company. And uh, so you can scan the ground and see what the surface minerals are, which gives you a clue as to what's below the ground. So there's just a lot of uses for this. Um, and environmental impact is another thing, uh, you know, and environmental changes is another use that you can use with the uh, hyperspectral imager. Well, you can measure those changes, but you also affect change, right? Because there's no waste when you're talking about farmers knowing exactly where they need, say, nitrogen or water or whatever it is. Instead right. of just having to cover everything, they know exactly how much to put and where. Yeah, so it not only saves the money, but it's good for the environment, too, because you don't have to spread as much uh, fertilizer or pesticide or uh, those kind of chemicals. Okay, so there is now, or there will soon be, an 8 to 9 inch orbiting telescope sitting inside a 12U CubeSat in orbit. What? How much does something like that cost? Uh, for us, uh, the development cost is probably around $3 million. Um, the actual CubeSat it co- costs a little less than that, of course, there's a lot of development costs. We've got to hire uh, more engineers, and engineers are not cheap. So, uh, And then launch cost is about a million dollars uh, for a 12U as well. So, What are you going to launch this on? Uh, so we we're looking at a SpaceX uh, Falcon 9. Our partner was launching a communications satellite, and they gave us a, a free slot on a Falcon 9. Hang on. It's not, not sure. going to cost you anything, or do you have to like put in some money? Well, that that's if if that deal goes through. So ah. that, that that deal has some issues right now. So we, we're also looking at um, a uh, New Zealand company, uh, Rocket Labs, and they can, they launch small payloads, uh, three hundred kilograms or less. So we'd be a major payload on their launch. How much is this weighing? Uh, this weighs about eighteen kilograms, so less than twenty. It's fairly light for, for a spacecraft, uh, which makes it inexpensive, but. Uh, on something as big as a Falcon 9, we'd be just a speck. You know, um, we're just kind of an afterthought. After they launch the main satellite, they just shoot us out the side. But on something like Rocket Labs, we'd be, uh, you know, a considerable payload, uh, at, at least uh, what, the 5% of the And of what's mass. your nominal orbit height? I mean, uh, the Hubble was at one of the highest orbits that the space shuttle could go to because they needed it way out of the way of everything as much as possible. Uh, is that, And because this is going, it's going to be a, a, either a SpaceX launch, a Falcon 9, or these the rocket labs, but one of the most heavier payloads on there what sort of uh, orbital height will you be will you be above the, the geosynchronous satellites for example or below them or, or... oh no no not that high <laughs> no we, we're actually going to be uh, well, higher than the space station but we're at 550 kilometers up to 600 kilometers is what we're looking at um, and there's a couple reasons for being that low one is 
we are safe from the radiation. There's not as much radiation at that low level because the Earth's magnetic field is still protecting us. Um, the other is that for ground observation, we're still close enough to ground. We can get uh, just about 1.3 meter ground resolution. So we can see your car parked on the ground with, with the satellite, uh, which is amazing for such a small, small satellite. Um, but if we were higher altitude, then we couldn't image a small detail on the ground. So that's why we've chosen uh, to have a, a lower altitude like that. Plus, uh, the orbit will only last uh, about 22 years uh, before it decays and uh, burns I was, up. I was going to ask about that. Okay. Yeah, right. Because you're still kind of rubbing against the outer layers of the Earth's atmosphere there. Yeah, that's right. Right. And yeah. and that helps us because if we're more than 25 years, then we need some way to deorbit. We need a, a deorbit engine or some way to to bring it down where it'll come down naturally. If now, is that a requirement? Aren't you required to, uh, to do that? Aren't all people that put things up in space required to like give a plan for how they're going to get rid of it i think if you're more than uh 25 years in orbit then you you have to have uh, some way oh to is it a time oh okay yeah right. or, or you know get out of the way so if you're in geostationary well, that's just impractical to bring it back down but you got to be able to move it to a, a, a junk parking orbit kind of thing um but for low earth orbit if you're less than 25 years then it, it's it, it's no worries although there is talk of actually having propulsion mandatory for anything above the space station they're talking about that now um, yeah just so they, your space junk doesn't fall in the station. <laughs> As our namesake part of our podcast implies, we it is an issue. We've got to, uh, we've you know, there's a lot of stuff up there, and people are thinking about it a lot more now. So, um, yeah, it's become a huge thing. You know, space situational awareness, yeah. uh, trying to find all the space junk. It's a huge thing, right? It's a problem. Things orbiting at those speeds, and especially if something explodes up there, now you've got speeds that are just out of control, and uh, a bolt can take down your entire project. Uh, yeah, right. In fact, we've actually got new customers now um, for situational awareness. Um, it's becoming such a, a big uh, government push for knowing where everything is. Uh, not only is space junk, but you know other countries' satellites. What are they doing so close to my satellite? That kind of thing. So um we have had interest in in that mm -hmm. as well so we may be selling time for doing that too yeah. well, this thing's got to be moving up there it's gonna be doing what 17 18 000 miles an hour yeah, that's right yep <laughs> well what's the plan for what's the time scale when are you shooting uh nominally for a launch uh right now it looks like a 2020 um we've had a, a couple of wow. pushbacks one was the the launcher the main payload got pushed back so that's typical in the rocket business. <laughs> There's always delays because of something or another. But right now, it looks like uh, 2020, we should be able to launch the first one. And then the next one will be six months to a year after that. And then we'll start launching four at a time. Um, and hopefully within five years, we'll have the entire constellation of 16 up. And then we're going to go to larger scopes, uh, maybe up to oh, half a meter to a one meter uh, scopes in orbit. And you're going to make these available to just regular people. I know. Yep. It's still mind-blowing. That, that idea. <laughs> You know, it's one thing to sit here and talk about this, like it's just another satellite, but then it comes back that this is a telescope we can log into and take pictures of whatever we want to, anytime we want. That's right. And 24 hours a day and no clouds. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that concept of there is no day or night in space, that takes a second to kind of, you know, if you're not putting up satellites all the time or thinking about these things, the idea that this can literally shoot 24 hours a day because there is no day or night. That's right. As long as the object's not behind the sun, then no problem. Shoot at any time. Now, big telescopes like uh, the Hubble and others, there is an elaborate um, bureaucracy of 
applying for time on this telescope where if you want to use Hubble you've got to make a science case and then they and then a a panel reviews every single proposal of which they get way more than they're ever going to have time for are you going how are you going to decide you said you can do this with with a cell phone how are you going to decide who gets to use it and when and for how who long buys, who buys the time first <laughs> Ah, so it's all, oh, so you're, okay, so that's that's the business model. You charge for time, which I think your website has some monetary amounts on there, right, as far as what you're charging for? Yeah, our, our amateur rate, we, we kept it low at $25 a minute, which is extremely reasonable for a space a space telescope. Um, that's our, our lowest rate. And, you know, we'll have professional rates, which they come with uh, extra features that professionals need. But we want to keep that one low rate there just so that everybody can have access and actually afford to at least try it out to, to try and use it. So I'm at home and I've heard that there is a sandstorm on Mars and I'm, I want to see for myself the sandstorm. Uh, and so I, I apply for my time. I say I would like a, uh, a, um, an exposure of, I don't know how long, but I have to know that, right? I have to know what my, I have to know all of the details of what my observation is going to be. I need to know how long I want to look at Mars and I want to know what filters I want to use and uh, which camera I want to observe it with. Right. So I, I somehow give you this information and then uh, you, you can do it that way, uh, but we'll have uh, easy kits for uh, amateurs. So if you, if people want to pay, take a picture of, Jupiter, I'm sorry, you're so going to have what kits? Uh, we'll have a, a kit set up that if you just want to take a picture of Jupiter, you just click take a picture of Jupiter. So we, you don't have to know all the, the technical details to do that. And we'll ha we have it so that you can set up as much technical details as you want. But we'll have a simple click and shoot as well. Because um, yeah, the whole thing is app driven, right? So, I mean, all of this is going to be built into the app that you're talking. That, that's right. Yeah. Okay. And so I'm sorry, so the minimum the minimum granular of, amount of time, what did you say it was for $25? Uh, Oh, uh, one minute. One minute. Okay, so I pay for and I I ask for five minutes. Uh, I give you one hundred and twenty five dollars, and I go and I say I want. Well, how how I know because I'm a I'm a professional user of telescopes, but how will the people know what that gets them? How, what does five minutes get? What do I do with with my five minutes? Um, how do I know that a picture of Jupiter? Are you going to tell me if, if I want a picture of Jupiter, you'll tell me it's going to cost you this amount of money or. Uh, yeah. So if, if you want to take a single picture of Jupiter, that'd be just a one minute because Jupiter is a fraction of a second, but our minimum is one minute. So it would just be charged at the one minute rate. Now, if you wanted to take a movie of, of Jupiter, say you take a picture once every 30 seconds or once a minute, then that would cost you, you know, by the time, by time. Um, so if you took two minutes, every two photos every minute, then that would be two. $25 for two pictures. Okay. Explain. Okay. The, so, so there'll be several levels apparently of, of, of being able to use this telescope. There's a simple level where I don't know anything and I just want a picture. Right. I, if I want the Orion Nebula or M31 or whatever it is. And then you'll tell me how much uh, time that will take and, and take the photo for me and then get it, get it back to me. Um, and then there's other, what would be another level uh, from that? If I wanted, you know, like I'm an advanced amateur. Okay. So I, um, another level might be, Hey, I want to shoot this in um, three different filters, uh, red, green, and blue. And I make a color picture of this nebular galaxy. Another might be that, Hey, I have a grism on board, which means uh, it's a type of spectrograph that I want to shoot this star for three minutes uh, with a spectrograph at this orientation. You know, 
that gets more complex because the cost goes up then, but it can be done. So we can do, you know, any kind of customization like that. And the professionals are going to want, you know, I need this picture taken at this time for this amount of time um, with these filters. And I need the data bound by this time. You know, they're going to have more demands than an amateur just says, I want to take a picture of this. That's, I just want a pretty picture. Okay. Will it be like Uber in that it tells you when your picture is going to be taken or, uh, you know, how, I mean, we're talking apps here, so (laughs) I'm just trying to envision, I'm just trying to envision one, one way we can offer this $25 a minute. uh, So inexpensively is that what we do is we put your observation into a queue with all the other observations coming in around the world. And then it goes through our, uh, computer program and says, okay, all these objects are right next to each other at this time uh, of the orbit. So it'll shoot all of them in a sequence that the spacecraft doesn't have to move very much. Yeah. So that's you know, exactly what Hubble does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a little wear and tear. So, uh, and it takes time to move from one object to another. Right. So if we can line all these objects so that they're say a, a degree within a degree or half a degree of each other, and they're just moving from one object to another, that's much more efficient, but it might take a little more time too. So if you are, say you used to want to take a picture of an object and there's nobody else taking anything nearby, that might take a little more time than if, everybody's shooting Jupiter say, but they'll know that, right? The app will tell them that you're in the queue, but because of where we're pointing now, we won't get over to your object until this time. Yeah. I think we can have some kind of uh, an estimate. Um, Of course, you know, uh, images are going to be flowing in continuously. Uh, So as your image comes closer, the schedule might change a bit, but generally within 48 hours, we can have your picture back. Wow. Okay. And, and it, it doesn't sound like you're needing any kind of science case for this. Anybody with, the money can pay for time on this telescope, right? Uh, yeah. In fact, that's, that's one of the reasons I actually like having a space telescope that can do this. Cause um, you know, I've done amateur astronomer, I've done professional astronomy and I, I've always disliked that I can't get access to a, a professional type instrument just because, you know, someone doesn't like my proposal or, yeah, you know, there yeah. are people out there that have different ideas about what they want to do for science and they can't get approved because they're not with a university or, or they don't, um, have a proper or what do you call it uh, an approved project you know I, I think there's room for everyone to do a project you know and with us if the telescope fills up we'll just launch more that's what i think is so innovative about this product this uh project anyway is that it really does connect people for the f- first time to a spacecraft i mean you can always like people have had direct TV and other things. They've had services from satellites for a long time, but being able to say satellite do this and then it happened is unbelievable. <laughs> you know, that, that that's something as simple as pulling out at your phone, getting on an app and then saying whether you want to shoot, you know, a galaxy or like you said, Jupiter or even point it back at your farm or just take a picture of your home from outer space. That's pretty, pretty amazing. But the fact that you can just choose, you don't have to have a reason to, it's just another service you can buy like anything else, like your Uber, right? And um, you're controlling a satellite. It's it's amazing. It truly is. It never gets old talking about that. I agree. I, I mean, I am, I am absolutely on board with this whole concept, but I do have a concern, and that is about unintended consequences. Now, I wonder what would happen Sean, if I decided that I want to do some surveillance on something on Earth that um, maybe isn't so benign, right? Maybe 
is there any, are there any, what, for example, I can imagine this being a problem for a lot of uh, military installations around the world um, and uh, other places that just don't want you looking, other countries that just don't want you looking at them and what they're doing. Uh, what, first of all, so my question's in two parts. The resolution of this telescope, will it enable you to see very fine details on Earth? And what about these unintended consequences? Have you thought about that? Well, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, our resolution is about 1.3 meters on the ground, um, but with <laughs> hyper-resolution, which means taking multiple images and statistically stitching them together, we can get down to one meter. Now, one meter. Uh, right, right now, there isn't any restriction on photos of less than one meter resolution, um, but if we get, I'm sorry, if more than one meter resolution. So if we are at 1.3, we're not restricted. If we go to, say, 0.9 meter resolution, then we start running into restrictions. So by whom? I, uh, by the federal aid, like government. Ah, okay. So there are there is somebody saying, "Hang on a minute." <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and you have to apply for licensing to do this. Um, the government does have to approve uh, our ca our camera and um, what we're doing. But because we're less than one meter resolution, there shouldn't be any any issue with that. Now, one thing we haven't talked to them about is, okay, yeah, what if I want to, you know, some Russian guy hires us to uh, monitor. The Whiteman Air Force Base, and see what the or, or see what his wife is doing uh, <laughs> on a Thursday night, well, right? <laughs> <laughs> he books all the time, and he just follows her around. Yeah, he's right. I mean, these guys are oligarchs, right? They do have a lot of money. <laughs> well, we thought about that, but we thought, well, wait a minute, it's cheaper to get a GPS tracker than use us or a printer purse. Um, so, I, I don't think there'd be much of that, but certainly, you know, monitoring of uh, military bases will be an issue, and I'm not exactly sure how we're going to figure that out yet. Um, so that may be restricted and I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that in, in any case. So, but um, at some point you recognize that some kind of allocation committee is going to need to review. I, I, I understand doing this all on an app and, and automated is going to make a lot of people, uh, efficiently get their observations done but right. uh you know i can easily imagine gosh i just want to sit over area 51 for a while i want to pay for an <laughs> hour and i want an hour of observations of area 51 and i just wonder um i mean i i don't i, I don't i just wonder what that what kind of checks and balances might be in place or even if it's necessary i was i'm not sure yeah um so it's uh i think it's uh what noah right now that approves the uh your imaging requests uh, for example, a Falcon 9 launched four or five months ago, and they couldn't photograph the launch because they didn't get approval. I read that. To have yeah, cameras pointed at the Earth, and those cameras were so resolution it was kind of ridiculous. But you know that was just some government rule, and it had been there the whole time. But nobody decided to enforce it until somebody realized, hey, wait a minute, they got cameras pointed at Earth. Doesn't doesn't that come under some regulation? Mm -hmm. And so. And SpaceX themselves pointed it out to the government. They said, you know, we forgot that we don't have permission to do this. And uh, Noah said, yeah, you're right. And they, they got it immediately. But yeah, yeah, that's an interesting. So we have to get that same kind of permission um, for our spacecraft as well. Although they're talking about putting all the agencies together. So it may not be Noah um, in the future. There may actually be one satellite agency we deal with. Hopefully that's the case because that'd be a lot less uh, red tape paperwork to go through all these different agencies. Just have one person you can talk to. So that's that's the ground resolution. But what's the resolution to the advanced uh, amateur astrophotographer that wants to take a picture of you know M fifty one? So it's a little better than 0.6 arc seconds, <laughs> and that's every time. There's no, no scintillation because of the atmosphere. So. Tony, you and I are booking all of the time. <laughs> yeah, I know. Half an arc second. That's <laughs> pretty dang good. We shouldn't even post this podcast. This yeah. is no longer available. What, 
So everybody knows that in the West, in, in, in Col- I lived in Colorado for 30 years. Everybody knows out there the skies are very pristine. But I can tell you now, I was doing good if I could get a five arc second night. Five arc seconds, not a half an arc second like we're talking about here. So this is really, really good um, resolution because you're up in space. You're, you're right. There's no um, there's no atmospheric effects. But what's the what's the telescope design? Is it a... Um, Newtonian? Is it a Schmidt Cassegrain? <laughs> what what is it? Uh, what's the it's design? A dob. Yeah, <laughs> 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 Hello. <laughs> Hang on, I gotta go push my dob around. Yeah. We send a guy up there every day to move it around. It's actually it's a modified Dal Kirkham. Um originally we were gonna go with the uh Richie Creation. Uh but the, the there's a couple issues there. Well, Richie Creation, because it doesn't have any lenses, that's fantastic because it lets all the wavelengths through since it's just two mirrors, but they're hyperbolic and their alignment is so critical that you know we have trouble collimating them on the ground. <laughs> you know, launching it and getting them to collimate in space, that, that was really worrisome. Because uh, I'd hate to really get it up there and have everything working and it's out of collimation. That would just, oh, that would be heart-wrenching. So we decided to go to the Dal Kirkham, which has a spherical secondary. So it's much more forgiving. You can be out of alignment slightly and it, it won't make any difference. Um, the, the secondary can be rotated. Again, and it'll, it'll be a perfect image. I'm actually not familiar with that design. So you've got a primary. I mean, explain to me the draw. Give me a little verbal drawing of the light path. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The main mirror, which is the 220 millimeter. Right. Uh, the, the primary. Diameter, right, and that the, has a hole in the center. Okay. So the the mirror reflects to the secondary mirror, which is like a traditional secondary, but it's spherical. And spherical means that I can rotate the mirror and it'll still be spherical. So it's it's. Yeah, collimation is simple at that point. Yeah, got right? it. It's, okay, so it looks like a Schmidt, really. Yeah, it looks very similar to a Schmidt cast screen, but mm-hmm. we'll have three uh, lenses in in the uh, in the back. So when the light bounces off the secondary, it'll bounce through the center hole in the main mirror, and in that hole, you have three lenses there to account for aberrations that you would have because you only have a spherical secondary. Okay, because we're amateur astronomers, we have to know these things. What's the focal yeah. length in the field of view? Uh, it's sixteen hundred millimeter focal length, and the field of view is going to be about one degree. By uh, by comparison, the moon is a half a degree as viewed from that's Earth. Right. So that's right. Yep. So that's wow. That's a pretty wide field, actually. Well, it's a pretty big sensor, you're right? The forty eight megapixel sensor. Oh, right. Yeah, it's uh, was it medium format or full frame? That'd be full frame. Yeah. Full frame. The, uh, the 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 imagers they sound pretty amazing too. But you've got a group. There's four of them. You said right? Uh, there's three main imagers. Um, we actually have, I think, twelve cameras on board. Uh, but three of them are for taking images through the telescope. But we also have six images on the outside of the spacecraft for seeing where the sun is and the moon is so we can locate our position roughly. And then we have two what's called star cams, and they look at the star field, and they can tell exactly where we are within a few arc minutes. And then, the, of course, the main imager can tell, lock onto a star with our – we have uh, guide chips next to the main imagers, and they can lock onto a star and keep it on track to within a few tenths of an arc second. Okay. You also, don't you have one more camera for people to shoot up? Uh, oh, yeah, and, and the space up. selfie camera. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, up. this is a real thing. <laughs> so put a screen on the side of the spacecraft um, so that people can send pictures of them or their loved ones or say, you know, hey, happy birthday or whatever they want to put on the side of the spacecraft. Now we have a camera located on the back of one of the solar panel wings. So we can take the, the image of their image with the earth in the background and download that to them so that they can uh, present that to somebody or have a you know keepsake. Yeah. He's not kidding right now. Wow. So, okay. When you said yeah, shoot up, I mean, I knew, I knew amateur astronomy was a drug, but I was like, what? <laughs> and so, yeah. and, and so, wow. Okay. So you could send photos or images up 
Right. Uh, and then have that taken against the backdrop, really, I mean, against the actual real Earth. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so your backdrop is the entire planet as it's orbiting the Earth, and you can send any picture you want to up there. So when Sean and Randy came and they were like, hey, we're going to start doing space selfies, it's like, you guys aren't going to want to look at the pictures that people are sending us. You don't know. I was just, just thinking that it, same thing. Just send it and stay blind to it. Yeah. Let's just, I not, don't ask, don't tell. It's just, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I do have, so I have an English bulldog, big, uh, like he's, he's so ugly. He's cute kind of dog, you know, and that's oh, yeah. the first thing I'm sending up, man. I've got to see this, this massive bulldog above the planet, you know? <laughs> All right. So we're, we're, we can look forward to the first one being launched around 2020. Um, and we don't know the launch vehicle yet, but here's something I want to ask. I want to ask you a little bit about how it's going to point, um, and also how you're building this, but I'll start with the pointing first. Are there reaction wheels on it and gyros? Yeah. So we have, uh, eight reaction wheels. We have, uh, four large and four small, and then we have three, what are called torquers. So the large reaction wheels are for big movement. So if I want to move 60 degrees across the sky, I need to fire up the large reaction wheels, move it, and then I'll, I'll spin them back down. The small reaction wheels are just for stabilize, stabilization or very small movements within a field. So say I'm locked onto a galaxy. I'm taking a 10-minute exposure of. Well, there's pressure on the spacecraft from uh, gravitational pull of the moon, gravitational pull variations in the Earth, radi radiation pressure from the sun. So there's, there's a lot of things giving very minute pressure to the spacecraft, and it can drift off target. So... The small reaction wheels will basically keep it on target and also do some vibration dampening to stop vibration from, from movement. Then we have torquers. And what the torquers do, they actually push their little coils that push against the Earth's magnetic field and they'll desaturate the wheels. So if the wheels get spinning too fast, then we can push, you know, fire up the torquers and they push against the wheel as the wheel can spin down without having the spacecraft move. And then, of course, you use gyroscopes for the pointing, the, the reference of where the spacecraft is, right? Um, yeah, we will actually have sensors on board uh, for, you know, t telling by, by movement. What do we call it? Um, plate solving? No, no, we have plate solving as well. But no, uh, our, our main way to find where we are in the sky is through GPS and using star cams. Uh, and we also have the cameras for the sun and the moon. But we will have um, inertial uh, inertial guidance as well. So we can tell when the spacecraft moves. We have uh, sensors on it that can tell. Uh, by the g-forces of the spacecraft that oh it's turning we'll have many different ways to to tell us in case an instrument fails we know which one to trust Got it. well maybe i'm overthinking this but you say you're going to use gps and gps works by triangulating a position on the earth right so from three different points in space generally a minimum of two is yeah. my understanding so how are you you're going to do like reverse gps how's that no, work? No, so gps satellites are still above us they're at 1100. Oh, okay. I thought you were above all this. Yeah. So we can still use GPS. It'll still give us our altitude and our three, our three dimensional, actually four dimensional positions. Okay. Um, so we, we can still use that to get within, I don't know, a few meters of, of where we actually are. Uh, but, but that doesn't tell us which way we're pointed. That mm -hmm. just tells us where we're at. And that's where you're going to use plate solving. Uh, right. Okay. Then, then we use our two star cams and, and plate solve the, the sky to tell what direction we're pointed. All right, so for those of you who don't know, I just want to say real quick about these reaction wheels. This is how you point spacecraft without using jets, right? These spin, they're big heavy wheels that spin on a spindle. And as you might have noticed, if you've ever played with a, in physics class, if you ever play with a bicycle wheel and held it by the, the axis of spin, you can actually f feel the torque as it rotates one way or another. 
Well, that's what these reaction wheels do. They convert angular momentum into motion for the spacecraft and it allows you to turn it without actually using uh, you know hydrogen jets and things like that to turn it around and almost all spacecraft uh, that need to do this kind of thing with pointing and moving a lot uh, use these uh, reaction wheels so that's what they do and it doesn't sound like you're really all you don't Hubble also has gyros for pointing and but it, I think it's because its field of view is so much smaller it needs a lot maybe a lot more precision um, than than the than the one degree field of view that you have here. I want to ask you a question about how you're building it, though. Did you say you're doing it on your right next to your particle accelerator on your table? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Uh, we actually we actually moved to a little better facility where no one because because <laughs> there's this thing called a clean room. I've always seen people use, and I don't know if you yeah. you you need that, but I was just wondering if you guys are using one. For now, we're we're still. You know, prototyping, um, building uh, prototype modules. We've got the laser comm set up on on a, a bench, um, and we're actually able to transmit and receive. So we're we're, we're getting good results, um, but we're not at the final stage where we're actually going to be assembling the final spacecraft yet, and that will require a clean room, of course. Um, so we're not quite there yet. Um, earlier this year, we had our our first round of uh, fundraising, and that was our seed round, and that went very well. Um, we're just getting into the venture capital round now. So maybe by the end of the year. And when we get that, then we will uh, upgrade our facilities because uh, right now we don't have the clean room. We don't, uh, our vacuum chamber leaves something to be desired, <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh, we're making huge progress on, on what we, you know, what we're working with now. Sounds amazing. So the next, the next prototype will be done in January, right? Uh, correct. We'll have two, two prototypes in January. We'll have a, a, a all metal model that has, uh, we'll have a working filter wheel, a working uh, tertiary mirror. Uh, everything will move on it and and accept um, the extension booms. But everything else, it's it's a demonstration model to show investors, hey, this is exactly how it works. We've already designed all the hardware. We know how it's all going to work. Now we're just putting it together to show it actually working. Uh, with the software, we still have a lot of software development to go. And that's what we're going to be doing next year. Um, but the hardware is pretty much done. We know we've worked, overworked uh, or worked through all the hurdles, um, overcome a lot of little little issues and problems. And um, so everything looks like smooth sailing from now. It's just just software. Yeah. Well, I know that one of the first problems we ran into was the temperature swing, right? Because you have the super cooled uh, sensors that can't, you don't want a lot of heat building up in the sensors. And then you've got the heat on the other side of spacecraft with no way to get rid of it. And there's nothing between them. Uh, yeah. So uh, we've, we dealt with that this year. Um, we actually hired electrical engineers and a mechanical engineer. Mm-hmm. And uh, we went through and modeled the entire spacecraft um, and in simulation, see what would happen if we applied, you know, sunlight to one side and, and have it radiate, the, radiate out the other side. And as a result of that, we removed all the surface solar panels because surface right. solar panels would take the heat that they're getting from the sun and just radiate it into the spacecraft. So mm-hmm. we moved them all to wings. So we all have not, all our solar panels are in wings now so they can radiate into space. Um, we've put more insulation on the side that faces the sun. And we have a side that never faces the sun, and that's where the chips are connected to. So that, sti- that side should sit at minus 40 or minus 50 degrees, and it will radiate the heat away from the chips, so keeping them nice and cool. Where the, the warm side of the spacecraft will house the batteries, the computer, the stuff that likes to be warm. Mm-hmm. So, And then the optics are actually in the middle. They're in an isolated center section, and they're isolated themselves all on a central plane. So the optics are not touching the outside of the spacecraft. They're actually uh, isolated, vi- vibrationally isolated, and thermally isolated from the rest of the spacecraft. Right, because otherwise, if one side were 
heated and the other cooled, you deform the mirror, right? Yes, yes. So we're, we're actually using silicon carbide mirror. Okay. Um, so the expansion is very low. Right. Uh, so even if it did, it did have some differential heating, it shouldn't be much of an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're trying to keep it as evenly distributed as possible. Well, Tony, I've seen the original prototype. We've played with it a lot here at OPT. Mm-hmm. Um, but in January, we definitely need to bring these new ones in here for one of the telescope talks yeah. and show this thing to everyone. Because just seeing this thing, it, it's... It's so incredible. Yeah, the new ones are just beautiful. They really, yeah. Yeah, if you don't know what that is, we do a Telescope Talk live hangout every Wednesday. Uh, And so, yeah, definitely that we should, well, when this is a chance to do, to show those things out. In the meantime, we should show the original prototype because you still have that. And uh, we should bring that thing in here because it's, uh, it's so impressive and it makes it real. Because what we're talking about still, if you're just hearing it, sounds like science fiction. You know, but you guys have made it science and we need to bring this in to show people. So when you see it, it becomes real, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Well, so this is happening, right, Dustin? I mean, this, I mean, even though funding is still being secured, this is happening. It's going to fly. Okay. Yeah. It's absolutely going to fly. When Ginny and I were looking at whether or not we were going to get involved, it was uh, really, I mean, the idea is so incredible. We felt like it had to happen, but I can tell you, Ginny got hooked the second we started talking about farming. It just, that piece alone makes it sustainable as a project, you know? And then when you put everything else in and you're like, you were saying um, in the uh, IR or UV, the UV, right. Yeah. It's just like, if you want the data, you've got to, you got to use it. Right. So it's just an ultra sustainable model. And uh, yeah, it's absolutely going to fly. What infrastructure do you have in place, Sean, for getting data down right now? NASA uses the TDRS system. Are you guys going to use that or are you going to use something else to for telemetry? No, we're actually uh, we have a convenient main optic, uh, the, the nine inch optic there. And we're actually going to use laser com, uh, laser communications to communicate with the ground. No and way. There's several reasons for this. <laughs> that is so cool. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> you just got to let them talk, man. I've gotten used to it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It just keeps going. They're not kidding. I'm telling you. <laughs> freaking, with freaking lasers. <laughs> so uh, anyway, yeah. So the spacecraft twice a day. Um, if we have two ground stations, it'll be twice a day. We're actually looking at four to get more data down. Um, and originally we were looking at 10 megabits per second. Uh, but we've managed to get that up to 200 megabits per second in the lab with our, our laser com that we've been testing. And so what we'll do is it'll aim down at the ground station. The ground station will fire up a reference laser and the spacecraft will lock onto that, that reference laser then fire its data down. And we'll actually be able to do two-way communication. So if people want to do the space selfies later, they can upload their images at whenever we're talking to the spacecraft. So the, but all the data from the day will be downloaded in two 10-minute passes each day so the ground station will consist of 14 inch uh, telescopes and right now we're looking at two but if we increase to four then we'll just have four ground stations we'll build these ground stations inside a a shipping container so we can move it wherever we need to uh, once we're launched then but most likely they're going to be in high peaks where professional observatories are because those have the not only the best conditions for astronomy, but they're also the best conditions for laser comm as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the bit depth of the pixels on the on the camera? You've got 40, for the 48 megapixel camera. What's its bit depth? How many uh, uh, bits per pixel? I th- uh, it's off the top of my head, but I thought it was 65,000. Uh, I have to, I'd have to get back. Okay. To so that would be, that'd be a 16 bits, uh, hundreds of megabytes per frame. And you're going to do all that via laser over 
uh, in just a few. What was the time? How many minutes? Uh, so each pass is uh, five to ten minutes. Wow, that's that's a well, that's pretty good. Okay, so you'll be able to you're confident you'll be able to get all your data on and off the uh, telescope in that time. Right, right. So we do we do have two radios on board, uh, but those are uh, really uh, like ninety six hundred baud. They're really uh, low bandwidth radios, and those are going over the global star system. So they're expensive to use per bit. But there, we don't need to have you know any kind of light, you know, real licensing or that kind of thing. It's not difficult to get licensing for those radios. But okay. if we had the main radio to transmit our data, that's a six hundred fifty thousand uh, dollar fine or fee just to apply for the license, and then you have to wait years to get the approval because there's so many satellites who are demanding the same wavelengths and the same bandwidth. So by laser, we don't have to have any kind of uh, FCC license for that. Yeah, 200 uh, megabits per second. That's pretty, or 200 megabits, yeah, per second. Right. That's pretty good. That's pretty good throughput. So. Yeah, and our, and our long-term goal is to go to deep space. And deep space, the only way to get that kind of massive amount of data back is by laser. And it's far more efficient per bit than radio would be. Hang on. You said deep space? Uh, yeah. So if you look at our website, our, our long-term goal is actually deep space mining, mining of asteroids. Uh, and these are not just any asteroids, but metallic asteroids. You're right. You're right, Dustin. Just let the guy talk. It just keeps going. Okay. Man. And I, you know, so much of it at first, I was just like, I, it's hard to believe. It wasn't until um, I started seeing all these things that I really believed it all. And, you know, Sean isn't the only tech genius in this company. You know, your partner, Randy, you want to kind of describe him and his background for a second? Yeah. So uh, Randy started out his career with uh, Hughes, uh, Hughes Aircraft, working on satellites, actually. Um, but he worked for Western Digital, and he actually developed the hard disk controller that made hard disks available in all the PCs, IBM PCs, and billion dollar venture. Yeah, right. Yeah, he, they, that company went from bankruptcy to you know, billions of dollars off of his design. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no big deal. What was that like? The IDE controllers? You mean? No, the, the controller for the hard disks for hard drives. I thought this those were IDE. Oh, okay. All right. Wow. Way back when with XTs and ATs. And oh, okay. We're setting the way back 80s. machine way back to the 80s. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So you've gone. So now we're coming full circle here. Let's talk. Let's bring it back to particle accelerators and ion drives. So this brings us to this longer term goal, right? This is what you meant when you, you're you going to take these ion drives that you've got the patent for and eventually put yes, them. Uh, so our, our, our long term goal, you know, 10 years down the road or uh, maybe the 2030s, somewhere in there, is to actually go to a an metal asteroid, which you know of several already. In fact, NASA is sending a spacecraft to one of them now, which mm-hmm. is great because it can survey it for us. Right. Um, we want to mine the asteroid, uh, basically turn the metal into dust, and then 3D laser print uh, anything that a customer would want. So we'd be kind of like uh, Amazon services of spacecraft where you say, hey, I need this object made in space, this tool or this spacecraft body. And we can actually 3D laser print it for you uh, in space. Wow, there's then, this there's this whole thing about when you you know space exploration and going to Mars called ISRU in situ resource utilization, where you use the stuff you've got right mm-hmm. there to make instead of bringing all the stuff with you, you make it there. Uh, that sounds like right. a really important part of human explore, ex, space exploration as well. So yeah, it's got to happen. Yeah, it's, gotta, it's amazing that we're even talking about time frames where you can say 20, 30 years. I know, I know. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we won't be able to colonize the solar system without doing that. That's, right. It's just not practical to launch everything we need from the Earth. Yeah. Um, well, that's a whole podcast on its own, so we probably should stop <laughs> there. Dustin and Sean, what are the best ways 
people can keep track of this, the status, how things are going, if there's a schedule, what is it, where can they look? Is it spacefab.us? Yeah, spacefab.us. You can actually sign up for our mailing list. We have that on, on there. Um, also, there is a, a an update news tab um, that has, whenever we do something major, we'll put that on there. Um, but we do send out an update at least once a month of what's going on, what we're working on, you know, how, how our progress is coming. Um, so that's probably the best way. Yeah, and like I said, OPT and uh, SpaceFab are sister companies. And so we post everything on our website as well. It's always there and it always gets our attention if somebody reaches out and asks a question about SpaceFab. So that's optcorp.com, right? Optcorp.com. And then on Instagram, it's optcorp. Okay. Does Elon Musk know about you, Sean? I, I would assume so. We've actually had um, <laughs> people from SpaceX you know, in- inquiring about, about us through our sister companies. So they're kind of checking us out uh you're not going to get bought out do you think you know how like facebook bought um instagram and all that that's not going to happen you don't think too will it it's, it's always a possibility you know? <laughs> someone comes and says you know, here's 500 billion dollars like, oh okay. you're not going to say no right, <laughs> right. <laughs> all right i don't think we're there yet all right guys well uh, i think i think we better stop there we've been uh talking about this for almost our full hour um we have been talking with uh sean league from SpaceFab, a company that is building a not just one but a whole uh network of uh space telescopes that will be available to all of us and and we will be able to uh use them directly this is space astronomy for the masses and uh, lots of uses uh, lots of great things going on there first launch is scheduled hopefully for 2020 or at least it's planned for 2020 and uh they are going to be launching an eight to nine inch uh not a schmidt cast it was what was the name of it again Modified Dal Kirkham. Thank you. <laughs> Telescope up in space with many cameras, uh, and it will also have UV filters on it, which is something very important for uh, professional astronomy. So, I don't know, Dustin. Wow, you. I, ever since I met you, it's like been a been a hurricane of cool stuff. This is really hey, amazing. We've got a lot going on here. <laughs> we like to stay busy, and if there's something about space, we're getting involved. Right. So I want you I want you guys to hope I hope you guys will interact with us by sending us some kind give us feedback. I've got an email address set up called OPT podcast at deepastronomy.com you can email me uh questions and comments if you would like follow-ups on any of that you can also leave us voice um messages on anchor.fm because that's where we are i'm posting this podcast and then it gets syndicated to all of the places that do podcasts and so you can listen to us there, but please interact with us. You can also leave uh, comments uh, and feedback to us on all of our deep astronomy, our uh, social media places, and OPT is on Instagram and Facebook. So uh, please interact with us in those ways as well. Well, Dustin, I guess that's it, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess it's, uh, I don't know how you wrap up a podcast on something like this. So I think you just have to say, Sean, thank you for coming in again. Yeah. And you're welcome to bring the satellite in anytime you like. And every day would be better. Here, I know how to do it. We'll do it this way. There, that was a mic drop right there. You just, do a, <laughs> that, you just that's drop. what it takes. You just drop. Yeah, we're the making mic. a satellite mic drop. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> Enough. <laughs> Bye. All right. Thank, thank you all so much for listening. And as always, you, keep looking up. Space Junk was produced by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California, in partnership with Deep Astronomy. Please send feedback and questions to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.